This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, January 24th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Mountain Village moves forward with housing developments. Joanna Spindler named new County Poet Laureate. Capital Conversation talks voting rights and a mountain weather forecast. Three housing development projects are in the works for Mountain Village. At a town council meeting last week, John Miller, community housing program director for the town, provided an update on how the projects are going. The first, and the one furthest along, is an expansion to village court apartments. The project will add 42 new units in detached apartment buildings between buildings 8 and 9 and building 14. I think everything is moving well. We're going to have to do some substantial site work, utility relocation. We're going to have to put a new trash can in because some older trash cans are coming out. And so I think that's scheduled for April 1, tentatively. Um, And if we're on that schedule, then it allows us to start to actually physically break ground on the buildings at the beginning of May. So I think we're moving along in a a speedy manner, given the stuff that we're trying to digest and, and work through. And it's all really complicated. When it comes to what the units will look like, Miller says the apartments will be middle of the road. It's not extremely... Um, luxurious. I mean, we have solid surface countertops, but for the most part, we've, we've really tried to go with kind of the, the solid option that's not, that doesn't look bad, but we have the add-on alternatives so we can say, okay, you know, we want to go with a higher finished carpet or we want to go with higher finished tile. But as of right now, really the solid surface countertops are, are kind of the the higher level finishes and there's not really much more than that. According to Miller, while the town plans to break ground this year, there will be a year plus of construction time. He says the units should be available for move-in in in the summer-fall of 2023. The next project is 30 to 70 units in the Meadows. The town plans to utilize a public-private partnership to develop the property with multifamily homes. Mountain Village is currently in the review process for a developer to work on the property. We intend to break break ground by October of 2022 on this project. So it is, again, an aggressive timeline. Finally, the town recently purchased and intends to develop a nearly 40-acre parcel in Norwood. According to Miller, the town is at the beginning phase for that property. The first step is for Norwood to annex the property into the town. That annexation will give a better understanding for what the development can look like. Because we're not going to be able to really do the subdivision until we know... um, what it is exactly that can fit on the side as it relates to density, open space, parking requirements, um, roadways. And so once we kind of get that that document finished, then we can go through our, our subdivision process. The Telluride Foundation is also working on developing housing in Norwood, but Miller notes Mountain Village's development will look different. We're going to have bigger lots. It's not going to be these really tiny subdivisions with duplexes. It's going to be more of like a country style home on a larger lot. But he notes the most important part of the development process will be working with the town and residents of Norwood. We're really trying to work with the town of Norwood to say, what is it that you guys need? Do we need childcare? Do we need maybe a substation for a fire department? Because we have 37 acres. So how do we make it palatable for the neighbors? How do we make the community or or the design of our new community fit in with the surrounding neighborhoods in a way that's not scary to some of the people that live there? I mean, when you think of 100 new houses in Norwood, 
that could double their population. And so it's, it's really a fine line. The three developments are part of a bigger housing initiative in Mountain Village, including a community housing inventory that identifies town-owned lots in Mountain Village that are possible locations for future development. I think what, what this document really intends to do is give developers an idea of what we have available, give options of what we're looking for as a community to say, okay, this is just not, this this is going to be a single family home, or this is going to be a multifamily townhouse versus a multifamily apartment complex. And that kind of structures our work plan going into the future, because we're very busy. I mean, we have VCA, we have 644, and we have Norwood. And so trying to, to manage three projects is difficult enough. So it gives us kind of an opportunity to say, well, when one finishes, this is going to be our next, and this will be our next after that. The inventory identifies six potential lots scattered throughout Mountain Village. From mountains to mesas, festivals to farms, there's a lot that makes San Miguel County unique. Another special aspect of the county is that it has a poet laureate. And recently, a new local poet stepped into that post. KOTO's Matt Hoish has more. Joanna Spindler found poetry at a young age. And, she says, she fell in love with it. I grew up in a very religious environment and started memorizing scripture at a really young age. Um, And I think, weirdly, that's probably the best possible bridge into literary poetry as well, because it turns out there's a, a lot of cadence and a lot of beauty in old texts, and the Bible is one of those. Poetry, Spindler explains, was a refuge. It started like that when I was very young, and I I started memorizing poetry secretly as a pretty young kid as well. I would just fall in love with a piece and and memorize it. To this day, those poems have stayed with her. They've become friends, she says, that come up in times when she needs them. Some of Shakespeare's sonnets, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Love Admit Impediments. A lot of kind of classic poets. Some Percy Bysshe Shelley. I've fallen in love with Rumi and Hafiz. The Sufi mystics in general, like, so um, sweeping, kind of timeless in what they express. More recently, Spindler explains, she's really started honing her own poetry writing, a practice she traces to commutes from Norwood to Telluride. Because in that commute time, I was kind of pushed to think about something, and poetry became it. Last week, Spindler was named the new San Miguel County Poet Laureate. The responsibilities of the role, she says, vary from person to person. It's a little bit like poetry itself in that it's undefined. But ultimately, she acknowledges the job is to further the evolution of the literary arts in the county and beyond. Spindler says she wants to focus not only on San Miguel, but the regional watershed more broadly. A living in and throughout Telluride and its region and spending a lot of time out on the West End, I've, I have such a deep love for Norwood and everything west of there. And I think that ultimately our county ends before some of that. But I would like to, if they're down for it, extend poetry outreach, not just through our county, but all the way beyond. Spindler also says the county needs a poet laureate because it needs a public witness. A public bard, someone to tell the tales, a cantadora. It's not about being the best writer, which by no means am I in our county. It's about being someone who's willing to use my voice and hopefully also in this role to pass the mic to others who need to be heard. The Board of County Commissioners named Joanna Spindler County Poet Laureate last week. As part of the ceremony, Spindler read one of her poems, which she reread for KOTO. This is called Fealty. 
I pledge allegiance to the rivershed of San Miguel and to the undersurface of mycelial network upon which we stand, our aspen roots and minerals and water. I pledge allegiance to our mother mountains Ajax, North Pole Peak, and Solitary Lone Cone. I pledge allegiance to the elk herd on the valley floor and to the many elk herds nowhere near it. I pledge allegiance to the waterfall in Ames, the bifurcated rhyolite of Ophir, and to the ponderosa forests down in Ilium. I pledge allegiance, too, to Sandstone Sawpit and the Mesas and Old Elam, to Placerville and staunch Old Ellardville. I pledge allegiance to the wide dark skies of Norwood and the many soaring raptors over Redvale, to the monumental apple trees of Nucla and to blooming Naturita, and beyond all to the rising red escarpments of the one and only paradox. I betroth my loyalty, my fellow human critters, to all that predates each of us, perhaps even our kind. To find a kinship with this place is each of our lives' myriad work. To form alliance with the season's turning skies, each rivulet revered of river water, and each evidential tree ring. To keep relatives close by and our coyote packs much closer, and our ear to earth the closest of them all. Yes, let me tell you, fellow San Miguelians, we are perched upon a treasure. For our bedrock is community, our greatest blessing, the Tanakh's adaptability that's modeled for us by each gentle juniper. And so, I pledge allegiance to us all, one organism, under open skies, each human inextricable from ecosystem, with oxygen and freely flowing sunshine for us all. Joanna Spindler will serve as San Miguel County Poet Laureate for the next two years. She encourages anyone with ideas for how she can be a public voice to reach out. We're still months away, but the state legislature is already looking at election season. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Scott Franz talks the intersection of voting and gun regulation. Hey, Scott. Thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, Julia. My pleasure. You reported last week that, you know, we're still at the beginning of the year, but lawmakers are already talking about elections and voting. Can you talk a little bit about what those bills are? I know there are some both from the Democrat and the Republican side of things. Yeah, so they're they're taking very different paths uh, this session um, on the question of, of voting rights and who should vote and, and how people should vote. Um, you know, Republicans have proposed a bill that would place a lot of new requirements on the paper that ballots are printed on. You know, the sponsor is Ron Hanks. He says that, uh, you know, that there's uh, the, the current paper is not secure enough, that there is room for fraud, um, things like that. So, so his bill, uh, you know, proposes to require invisible ink and, the holograms and things that that you know are commonly found on checks as security features. You know, I'm not expecting that bill to to leave committee uh, just based on the control of the legislature at this point, with Democrats still very much in power. You know, a lot of these bills are, are more again just um, almost you know policy positions. Um, Republicans are also proposing to um, have county clerks essentially cancel voter registrations for people who have been reported as um, ineligible for for jury duty. Think people who you know, have moved away from their county or, or haven't um, you know responded to 
um, a jury request. You know, on, on the other hand, Democrats so far, you know, their their big voting proposal is to ban the use of firearms at polling places. Um, you know, this is something that gun safety advocates have been calling for in recent years. Um, they kind of cite the the tone of recent elections. Um, you know, the rhetoric getting more heated, and the fact that we've seen a lot of armed um, protesters at, at political events um, in recent years. You've said that things are a little bit slow at the Capitol. There hasn't been a huge amount of debate yet on bills, but you know, just having this one from Democrats in pretty early, does it feel like it's something that that could likely pass this legislative session? You know, looking at the sponsors, I definitely think out of the gate, it its prospects are. Um, are quite good. It has um, Tom Sullivan. He's he's been the um, you know identified um, kind of lead proponent of gun control, gun safety legislation at the Capitol. Um, a reminder for listener Sullivan: uh, his he lost his son Alex in the Aurora Theater shooting. Um, so he's um, actually successfully passed several. Um, pieces of gun legislation. And, it, you know, it has several other Democratic sponsors, um, you know, for coming out so early in the session. I'd, I'd say it will kind of spark, you know, a debate, especially with conservatives who, uh, you know, have challenged um, gun legislation in the past. Um, but yeah, well, um, you know, things will probably kick off and earn its next week and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's that it's an interesting mix of both gun regulation and voting rights, which, you know, two of the more contentious topics in our politics yeah. at the minute. Yeah. And I, I want to bring up one more, you know, there was the, there was one I, I was just sitting down to actually start looking into, which is this question of um, prohibiting hunting of mountain lions that, that some of the sponsors, um, you know, they were all Democrats, but some of the sponsors have already, you know, announced their intentions to go off of that bill. So that's the case of one that, that may be already, perhaps wavering because of, um, you know, public outcry, especially coming from the hunting community, which is kind of interesting. You know, this time of year, usually the initial bills are the ones that, you know, appear to have the most support and um, especially within the caucus and to set priorities. So it was interesting to see a proposal like that, you know, come out and have, have some issues. Well, and then you mentioned for... The Republican bills that are getting proposed, you know, we know that Republicans are in a tough spot for passing legislation just because they are in the minority in both the House and the Senate and they don't have the governor's mansion. And so you mentioned them kind of more as policy positions rather than maybe realistic bills that could pass. Do you get the sense that, I mean, especially in an election year, that that is maybe more where the bills are going to be coming from for Republicans, or does it seem like they're going to try and, you know, maybe get some of that bipartisan support to actually pass legislation that then they could potentially run on in the fall? I think early on here, we still see a lot of bipartisanship around pandemic policy. The first bill that's actually moving through the legislature uh, is a bipartisan bill um, that's you know, clearing through unanimously that, um, you know, really tries to give some sales tax relief to small businesses that bring in under $100,000 of revenue. So they very much are at the table and voting alongside Democrats for, you know, a lot of pandemic relief proposals. Um, later in the session, as we get closer to Election Day, I think that's when we're going to start to see more, um, you know, of these 
kind of bills that I just mentioned around election security, um, around um, guns, around um, you know social issues. We're already seeing one, um, you know, trying to um, you know outlaw more abortions. Uh, so, you know, I think everything is, is on the table, but that's not going to prevent um, Republicans, especially many in leadership who are, you know, wanting to um, actually advance proposals that they can point to and, and run on, like pandemic relief, like, um, you know, helping small businesses, um, you know, get, get through this um, legislative session. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely be keeping our eye out for all of those twists and turns as they come. And Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was KOTO's Scott Franz reporting from Denver. If you're a seasoned backcountry skier, sending it for the first time, a hiker, ice climber, or cross-country skier, it's important to know about snowpack snow science, and safety in the backcountry. This week, the Telluride Mountain Club, Mountain Trip, Telluride Mountain Guides, San Juan Outdoor Adventures, and Telluride Helitrax are coming together to provide that information through a backcountry chat. Ryan Howe will be speaking this month. Howe is an avalanche worker, ski patroller, guide, and educator. He will be presenting on Avalanche Partner Rescue. The talk will explore lessons learned from real-life scenarios and expand on takeaways from test stress in rescue settings. The backcountry chat will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Thursday, January 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. A new work of art is coming to the Telluride Arts District. Next month, the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery will feature an exhibit called Historic Treasures of the San Juan Mountains from Thomas Livingstone. The exhibit is a collection of photographs sharing historic mining sites nestled within the rugged mountains of southwest Colorado. Photographer Thomas Livingstone tries to preserve the spirit of the early San Juan mining pioneers who lived and died in the mountains by capturing the mining sites as they fade away due to harsh climate and age. Livingstone grew up in Colorado and developed an interest for outdoor activity and photography from a young age. He spent seven years trekking and adventuring across the San Juans to capture the mining structures and the majestic mountains they sit within. The exhibit will live at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery from February 2nd to 28th. There will be an opening reception as part of Art Walk on Thursday, February 3rd. Several local boys are making good and heading to the Olympics this winter. Telluride local Lucas Foster and Norwood-raised Hagen Kearney will represent Team USA in Beijing. Foster will compete in the snowboard halfpipe. This is his first Olympic Games. Kearney will compete on the snowboard cross team. He was also on Team USA at the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018. Gus Kenworthy also qualified for his third and final Olympics. This year, he will be competing for Team Great Britain. The 2022 Winter Olympics will take place in Beijing, February 4th to 20th. In the Colorado River Basin, agriculture accounts for about 80% of all the water used. As the river's supply shrinks and some farms start to make cutbacks, many are wondering if new technology can help them use less water. 
KUNC's Alex Hager visited growers in one of the driest parts of the Southwest and has their story. It's a warm winter day in Yuma, Arizona, and the desert sun is beating down on a sea of low green fields. Matt McGuire looks out on neat rows of cauliflower and lettuce. Those are the main crops, but we have other crops. We're actually growing carrots, radishes, celery. McGuire is the chief agricultural officer for J.V. Smith Companies, which grows all this produce. Spring mix, spinach, you name it. You find it on the grocery shelf and it's a leafy green. It probably came from here. He says 80% of the country's wintertime vegetables come from this area, and the rows of veggies are striking in their perfection. The field is a corduroy of precision-cut stripes, and the dirt that holds the roots is chiseled into angles you could measure with a protractor. These laser-leveled fields are just one innovation that's come along all in the name of efficiency. This system is showing us so far when we're doing it, that uses half as much water as what we're using for sprinklers. And so it's just a uh, constant progression to try to use less water. They're trying to use less partly because someday they might be given less. Farms in other parts of Arizona are already seeing cutbacks to their allocation from the Colorado River due to drought that's straining the entire region. And at this rate, the cuts will hit more farms in the years ahead. Hope and pray for more rain, more snow, but we're trying to prepare for less water. Farms everywhere have long been adopting new technologies to help the bottom line, which right now includes using less water. Paul Brierley works on desert agriculture at the University of Arizona. I have farmers today that say, well, we're doing everything as good as can possibly be done. And and I always say, let's look in 50 years and look back and we'll laugh at these pictures just as much as, as We laugh at the pictures from 50 years ago. He says that innovation includes complex weather data, mobile apps, drones, and satellites, all to help measure and distribute water. This was something that um, a lot of money's gone into from a lot of sources uh, proactively, really. It's not because government said you, you have less water this year. It's because the industry wanted to know, how can we best figure out what's the right amount of water New tech on farms throughout the Southwest can lead to less water applied to crops. But that doesn't always mean the water is being saved. Farmers are more interested in income from water. That's Frank Ward. He studies water policy and the economics of agriculture at New Mexico State University. They're more interested in what part of their water applied gets to the root zone. Uh, So, you know, conservation is less of an issue for the typical farmer than you might think. One common technique that appears to bring water use down is drip irrigation. Drip irrigation actually, for the plant, you typically uses more water depending on how you apply it. Uh, So your recharge to the aquifer goes way, way down. Ward co-authored a paper explaining how some of the most popular farm technologies don't actually decrease water use on a basin-wide scale, but they're still being adopted because... At an individual farm scale, it may look like it's conserving water because you're applying, you're applying a lot less, but the, uh, the research seems to be showing that shifts into drip irrigation are not conserving water, but they are raising farm income. So when it comes to the future of farming in an area with less water to go around, Ward says rising prices will mean more dedicated efforts to use less, eventually grow less, and... Any of those areas where you have heavy urban pressure 
on water use and where you have water trading, you would probably expect farmers to gradually rent or transfer their water from farms into cities. And those realities may be on the way for parts of the Colorado River Basin. Climate scientists are projecting a warm and dry future where dropping reservoir levels mean more mandatory cutbacks. I'm Alex Hager in Yuma, Arizona. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 15 degrees. Tuesday should be mostly cloudy during the day and partly cloudy at night with scattered snow showers. The high is near freezing with a low around 10. Wednesday, expect sunny skies with a high in the mid-30s. Wednesday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low around 10 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, January 24th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. True North is hosting a free College 101 workshop via Zoom at 6 p.m. this coming Wednesday, January 26th. This presentation is for students grades 8th through 11th and their parents in the Telluride, Norwood, and West End school districts. Please register at truenorthyouthprogram.org or contact 970-708-1986 with questions. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues. 